0: Hi, my name is Tan Yu She. I'm a third year medical student at the New York Institute of Technology, and you're listening to Do or Do Not. On today's episode of Do or Do Not, we will be talking with Dr. David Galinkin. Dr. Galinkin is an infectious disease expert that graduated from NYITCOM in 1998, did his residency at North Shore Manhasset, and completed his ID fellowship at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Today, he will take us through his journey in medicine and give us his look at the COVID-19 situation. But let us start with your plight, Dr. Galinkin. How did you first know that you wanted to become a physician?
1: I have uh, always wanted to be a doctor since I can remember. My father is a retired pediatrician and growing up he was always my role model and my hero. You know i i loved his enthusiasm for medicine he always seemed so happy the ability to really help people in their lives especially at their worst possible moments providing comfort and compassion you know i'll never forget whenever we would run into patients or patients families out in restaurants you know how enthusiastic they were to see him how happy they were to see him and that was something that i always thought would be a nice thing to have as well so i definitely went into medicine because it's kind of my family business
0: I'm glad to hear that the values stayed the same over the generations also. Where did you go to college and how did you learn about DO school?
1: I went to college at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, which was a a great university. I think everyone who goes to Michigan loves it. I loved it. I may have loved it a little too much at the beginning of my time there because I spent a lot of time partying and going to uh, sporting events and less time in the library or less time than I should have. This may have affected my grades adversely my first couple of years. So to mitigate that, I actually stayed in Ann Arbor for two additional years, and I got a master's degree in public health and epidemiology. And during that time, I took courses in tropical medicine and microbiology um, and epidemiology statistics. And I don't think I quite realized it at the time. In fact, I know I didn't, but I think that that was what was laying the groundwork for um, an interest in a career in infectious disease. At that time, in 1994, when I graduated from School of Public Health, osteopathic medicine was much more popular in the Midwest than it was in the Northeast. So I think one of my advisors advised me to look into NICOM as a possibility for medical school. I went to NICOM. I went for my interview. I got accepted and the rest is history. It was the place for me. I was from Long Island. It was close to home. And after having spent six years in the Midwest, I was kind of ready to come home for a little while. So it was kind of the perfect storm for me.
0: You know, it always puts me at ease when I hear that not every fantastic doctor studied 24 seven. I think it definitely gives hope to some students out there that are struggling to study right now. What was your medical school experience like that drove you to pursue a residency at Northwell?
1: During my third and fourth years at NICOM when we did our clinical rotations, I felt it was important to try to push myself to go to places where I might want to do my residency. Kind of, I knew that I would have to showcase myself because at the time it was really difficult for DO students to get residency spots side by side with MD students. So I did special sub-I's all over the place, uh, mostly in the, in the New York area because that's where I really wanted to be. And I know I, I did a sub-internship at North Shore. I did one at NYU, at Bellevue. I did one in the Bronx at Einstein and these were all very challenging and I really felt that I needed to prove myself alongside of their own students to, you know, to the powers that be because I really wanted to get interviews and I really wanted to give myself the best shot at getting a spot in the program. So I ultimately ended up getting interviews at all of those places, which was kind of unusual for DO at the time. The the program director at NYU told me that I was the first DO that he had ever interviewed for a spot, but they were just very impressed with me during my sub-internship. He also told me I would not be offered a spot, that I shouldn't rank them very high because they were not taking DOs at that time. But nevertheless, it did make me feel good about myself that at least I was considered for an interview. The guy at Einstein, I remember, told me that I also shouldn't get my hopes up about getting a spot there for residency because they weren't taking DOs at that time either. However, he told me that I should not forget about them for fellowship, that things change and you never know what could happen. So, you know, that kind of always stuck in the back of my mind as well as I moved forward in my career. So I ended up ranking North Shore at University Hospital in Manhasset as my top choice, and that's where I ultimately ended up going. I think for my class, there were 13 or 14 students from NICOM, and we were working side by side with the students from all over, the MD students from elsewhere. And it was really the year before that they had started taking students from NICOM. I think there were about 10 or so in the class ahead of me. And it was just interesting. It was really the cream of the crop from NICOM that ended up there, at least in those early years. And really all of my mentors from residency were DOs, Simon Prince, Philip Nizza, Laura Hildebrandt, Adam Chris, Dennis Kotechis, just to name a few. I mean, those were some of the brightest doctors that I've ever known. And I really, early on, learned a lot from them. And they were tough on me, and we were all kind of tough on each other because we knew that we needed to have a little bit of a chip on our shoulder and be able to prove ourselves that there wasn't some kind of fluke that we were there, that we belonged to be there alongside everyone else that was there. And I think through that hard work and you know, determination and never giving up and never backing down, we kind of all proved ourselves together, and we were able to kind of lean on each other and rely on each other and get through what was a very difficult three three or four years. It's funny, a lot of people think back on times in their lives that were the most profound. And, you know, my generation, we never had to go to war. We were never drafted for the armed services. But uh, this, for us, kind of felt like our war. You know, we were brothers and sisters in arms together. And there was a lot of camaraderie, especially among the osteopathic students, uh, but ultimately among all of the residents there. And it was really a great atmosphere. And I think having trained at North Shore really laid the groundwork for where I am today.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about your residency? I understand you were the chief resident the year before Dr. Storch?
1: I was very excited to be offered the chief resident spot alongside Jason Ehrlich and Larry Kanner. Larry and I had been lifelong friends um, who just happened to end up in the same residency program together. And uh, Jason and I were friendly during residency, but we... You know, we never really were friend friends, you know, until we shared that tiny uh, chief resident room together, Um, and now I, I consider the two of them to be among my best friends now 20 years later. Being chief resident was one of the best experiences of my life. It really allowed me to hone my skills as far as research goes and learning how to look deeply into a case and helped me with public speaking, which I had never been very comfortable with, and with teaching residents, there was a lot of teaching involved. Also during my chief resident year was 9-11, which obviously that was so traumatic. And really on that day, we watched all of the events unfold from the chief resident's office. There was a small 13-inch television up in a corner that we had about 40 people gathered around just in amazement watching what was happening in real time. Um, and I'll never forget, you know, on that Tuesday, we kind of all knew what, what had happened and there were rumors that they were going to be ferrying patients from ground 0 to north shore and we were told that we should prepare teams that might need to stay on overnight and that you know we should prepare the residents to treat inhalational injuries and crush injuries so we really you know made this one day program in anticipation of all of these patients coming we arranged pulmonologists to speak trauma surgeons to speak to the residents i'll, I'll never forget asking you know were there any volunteers to stay overnight or to for an overnight shift every single person's hand went up Sadly, of course, there were no survivors, there was no ferry, there, was no, uh, there were no patients to treat. But, you know, we all just kind of sat around not knowing what to do that day and for the next several days after that. And that was the most traumatic day of many of our lives, certainly in our country's history. It was quite a traumatic day. And you never forget the people that you shared that day with, where you were when that happened. And, you know, the bond that was created on that day, especially amongst all of us, was very strong. The other thing I will say about my year as chief resident was, as chief resident, you really need to have a core of people to rely upon to help you out when things happen, like when people call in sick, when you need extra hands on deck, like with 9-11. And I always had a, a core of residents that I could depend on. And they will always mean the world to me, too. So Jonathan Weinstein, Ian Storch, um, Lucas Boudis, Jim Pritziolis, all guys that were the year ahead of me or behind me, after me, they were my right-hand men. And I knew that uh, if ever I needed a favor, uh, some coverage, without even hesitation, I could count on them to always be there for me.
0: Thank you for sharing that intimate and traumatic story with us. It really puts us in the shoes of a position that, God forbid, a lot of our listeners, as well as I, might be in one day as practicing physicians. Throughout all this craziness, how did you decide on infectious disease?
1: So while doing my internal medicine residency, you know, I guess that's when you kind of figure out what you're most interested in, what you're best suited for, where your path may lead you. And I found the infectious disease cases to be the most interesting really appealed to me, the idea that every case was like a puzzle and that if you could identify the problem, you could identify the solution, the treatment, you could really save somebody's life. And uh, and that's what it's all about. I also like the idea of working with very sick people and um, that feeling of gratification when you heal those people, when they get better. And I felt that From my personality, I'm able to talk to people when they're very ill and explain things to people in a way that they can understand it and try to be reassuring when I'm able to be. But to be confident also, you know, I'm confident in knowing what I know, knowing what I don't know, knowing how to treat infections. And during residency, really, I felt that was going to be my path. The chief resident year also allowed me the luxury of having some time to kind of look around and decide where I might want to do fellowship. That year, the ID programs didn't fill for the match, so there were a variety of programs that were available. I ended up interviewing and was offered spots at NYU, at Sloan Kettering, at Albert Einstein, which kind of fulfilled this um, you know, prophecy that I was told when I was applying for residency that there might be a fellowship spot for you. And I ultimately decided to go to Sloan Kettering just because... I was a single guy, it was in the Upper East Side, and it was a great program. And, you know, I really felt like that was the best fit for me. And um, again, for me, that was just an incredible experience, you know, working in a world class hospital, seeing the sickest of the sick. One of my mentors and now my partner, Phil Nizza, said to me, you know, if you can learn how to treat patients without an immune system, treating patients with an immune system is a snap. So he had done his fellowship right before me at Sloan, and again, we had met at North Shore. Now we're in partnership together in Suffolk County. So anyway, my advice for anyone looking to do a fellowship would be to go wherever you can see and experience the most variety of cases. The thing that appealed to me about that program at the time was that they had an affiliation with New York Presbyterian Hospital, which was Cornell at the time. And so you got to see regular patients with immune systems too. You we also were able to experience um, transplant patients and cardiothoracic surgery patients and uh, the unique infections that are found in those populations. There was also an association with the Hospital for Special Surgery where I learned how to treat joint infections and bone infections. We also were shipped out occasionally to Kings County STD Clinic, which was a very eye-opening, interesting experience, <laughs> you know. I got a lot of funny stories from that experience, but I definitely learned a lot there, that's for sure. You know, and really the whole mission of Sloan Kettering is, is to really take care of patients and using science to do that in a smart way. So it was a very intellectual community of doctors that I was surrounded by and really patient focused though and really taught me, not just from an infectious disease standpoint, but from a doctor's standpoint, you know, the humanity, the empathy, the compassion that you need to have with patients who are in such a vulnerable state and you just want to be there for them in every possible way. But that experience at Sloan Kettering really molded me into the doctor that I am today.
0: It really sounds like some of it is about being in the right place at the right time. Do you think that the success in your medical career is secondary to intelligence and hard work or luck?
1: So I think that anyone with a successful medical career has to have a combination of all of these things, intelligence, hard work, and luck. You know, I think much of it is being in the right place at the right time, as far as getting accepted to the right school, getting a spot in the right residency program, and, you know, getting the right spot in the fellowship as well. But none of those things happen without hard work. And I think especially for an osteopathic medical student, you know, you're always trying to prove yourself, you know, not just to everyone else, but to yourself too. You know, I think that that... Is something that is very important. You know, you need to realize that there are no intrinsic differences between MD students and DO students other than, you know, grades, essentially, maybe in school, or, you know, unless someone had a special desire to become an osteopathic medical doctor. You know, I think really you can overcome any lack of success in grades with hard work and with personality and with determination. And I think that that's what many of us have been able to do.
0: While we're on the topic then, do you think that your path would have been easier or better if you were an allopath or an MD?
1: I don't think so. I think being an osteopath really brought out the best in me. I really felt like I was always on display from my knowledge and I would always feel ashamed if I wasn't able to show my knowledge, you know, if I lacked knowledge. So I really worked very hard to make sure that I understood every facet of every case So any question that could be asked of me, I would be able to answer correctly by any kind of superior.
0: Moving on to more current events, being an infectious disease doctor, what are your thoughts on the COVID-19 situation?
1: This has been a really, really tough experience being uh, an infectious disease doctor during a pandemic. You know, everyone thinks, oh, this is what you've been waiting for. This is the big one. It's not. (laughs) It really isn't. You know, as an infectious disease doctor... We want to be able to identify the infection, we want to be able to identify the treatment, and we want to be able to observe the patient over the natural course of the disease from beginning to end. And with this infection, we don't understand the infection. There are no real viable treatments. A lot of what we've tried has been kind of trial and error, and it's quite frustrating. It's the exact opposite of everything that we're kind of in tune to doing. So this is not the pandemic I was looking for. The uh, the recommendations have changed almost every day uh, as far as who was at risk, what kind of treatments we should give. You know, Initially they said it was going to be mostly elderly and immunocompromised people. I could tell you from my experience, we haven't seen a lot of immunocompromised people. There have been a lot of elderly, but it's been a lot of previously healthy 40 and 50 year olds that have been infected with this and have done poorly, which is very, very hard to explain. You know, we were initially all told that thankfully, children didn't seem to be affected at all by this virus. And now all of a sudden, there are over hundred cases of children being infected by this virus weeks and weeks after they were exposed. So this is something very different than we've ever seen before in our lifetimes. And I have a feeling this is gonna change the way of life in America and abroad for many, many years to come. There's a lot of anxiety that goes into treating these patients, obviously. My instinct is to be there, be in that room, get all of the information that I can, um, and be supportive and, and give an accurate treatment. However, I often have found myself kind of like Tom Brady in the pocket, you know as a quarterback. I walk into a room and I have this clock in the back of my head that's going off that's saying "You got to get all the information, but you got to get out of there before you get sacked because you don't want to get this thing and I certainly don't want to get this thing you know I don't think anybody does. I saw over four hundred patients with Covid, the majority of whom did well, you know the very small minority who did not, but the thing that was really frustrating or has been frustrating thus far, is it just didn't seem to be any rhyme or reason for who got better, who got worse, who lived and who died. We just now started working with this drug Remdesivir, which seems to have some promise. Um, I used it in one patient who was a 39-year-old woman who came in very, very sick on the verge of intubation, and then we gave it to her, and she was home four days later, totally fine. So I'm convinced it saved her life. So N equals one, that study was effective, you know, But, uh, but who knows what the future will bring. I know that they are furiously working on treatments and a vaccine. Hopefully, this will come back soon.
0: How concerned are you about contracting this disease and possibly transmitting the illness to your
1: family? You know, with my profession, I am at risk for acquiring many of these infections. You know, with HIV in the beginning, we were very worried about blood products and being accidentally stuck with needles and, you know, accidentally having that disease transmitted to us. You know, with tuberculosis patients, every time you walk into one of those rooms, you run the risk of catching TB or being exposed to it at least and having to go on INH for nine months or so. But this one just feels different, you know, every patient having to wear two masks and a face shield and gown and two pairs of gloves and then coming home and I kind of started wearing scrubs to work and I take them all off in the garage and I run upstairs and I shower before I touch anyone in my house and I try not to uh, cross-contaminate my children, my wife, my dog, you know, anybody because... Really we don't know what's going to happen. You know we don't we don't know what are the future effects of this. I don't think anyone knows that at this time.
0: Can you comment on the burnout that you're seeing from healthcare professionals during this time?
1: This disease is definitely causing burnout among physicians. I think burnout was a big problem before this disease hit. The way medicine has changed in the last 20 years, you know, we all kind of went into this thinking that we were going to be the bosses and we were going to have that entrepreneurial spirit and slowly but surely, all of our practices have been bought up by corporations or health systems. And uh, many of us have become, you know, middlemen when before we weren't middlemen, uh, so to speak. But this disease in particular has just been another humbling blow, you know, just when we thought we knew uh, the answers, they changed the questions, so to speak. So, you know, it's been really a difficult road. And I see my colleagues around me slowly burning out, in fact, I felt it myself a couple of weeks ago. I told my partner that I just needed to take a couple of days off. That just the constant stress and the dying of young people just really got to me. So I, I needed to take a couple of days to myself, which I think is really good advice for everybody. You know, I think you always work at your best potential when you are well rested and when you you're not bogged down emotionally. And I think you have to be in tune to your own body and your own mind, and you have to know when you need a break and There's no shame in that. You know, I think self realization is very important and it's to everyone's benefit to have people performing at their highest peak ability. I was proud of myself for taking a couple of days. I needed them and it really allowed me to reset my brain a little bit. It allowed me to spend some time with my family that I needed because I had been working so much. Kind of got me ready for the second half, you know, so to speak, uh, or whatever surge might be coming.
0: Thank you for advocating and normalizing physician mental health. Do you feel like that this pandemic has placed a new different value and emphasis on infectious disease doctors?
1: So this pandemic, a lot of people are saying that the infectious disease doctors are now like superstars like Anthony Fauci. You know, I think the majority of us are just happier uh, being behind the scenes and quietly going about our business of stamping out infection. You know, I don't think any of us really enjoy or want the spotlight and We would be much happier if there were no pandemic and everything could just go back to normal. You know, I think that that would be much better for everybody.
0: Most medical schools are closed right now. But when they do reopen, what advice and words of wisdom would you have for a student that would rotate with you?
1: You know, I think as a student, your job is just to keep your eyes wide open and just take in everything going on around you. During training, we take bits and pieces from all of the people who we are learning from. Like I can even hear myself sometimes when I'm talking to a patient almost verbatim say some of the things that some of my mentors in fellowship or residency would say, or even my colleagues. You know, you could pick up things from your colleagues, just little phrases that you use when you talk to patients. In my mind, being a good doctor, it's being able to communicate with people well. When you can communicate with a patient well, you can find out exactly what's going on the most important part of the exam is the history. The history is very important. And so, you know, my advice to students when they're rotating, try to pick out that one part of each doctor that allows them to extract that piece of important historical information from each patient and try to incorporate that into your history taking routine. And, you know, it comes with time. Just like with everything in life, you know, you're not as good at the beginning as you are when you're peaking. Unfortunately, with medicine, the peak happens and you still have a long career after that. So you're just gonna get better and better. Don't lose confidence in yourself. Look up every single thing that you don't understand. Be confident in what you know, but don't be afraid to ask for help if you need it. Remember, you're dealing with life and death decisions in many cases here. So I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. Being a doctor has been the best thing that happened to me. I met my wife because I did the chief resident year and Larry Canner, my co-chief resident's wife, set us up together on a blind date and uh, the rest is history. You know, if, if I had gone to a different residency program, who knows where my life would be? It would be completely different. Have faith, things happen for a reason. And um, being a doctor is still a noble profession. And I think today, even more than ever, doctors are becoming more appreciated for, um, for all of our hard work and dedication. Thank you
0: for sharing that advice and your story through medicine, Dr. Galinkin. This concludes our fourth episode of Do or Do Not. Send all inquiries, comments, suggestions, and even let us know if there's someone you want us to interview to do or do not podcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook at do or do not podcast for updates. If you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your classmates and administration. We have plenty of more interviews lined up and we're excited to share them this is Tian Yu OMS3. Thank you guys so much for listening to Do.